I've always wanted to write a book, but I don't have writing skills. I mentioned that last week, and some of you came up to me and said, you don't have to have skills. All you need is a good editor. So I've always wanted to write a book, but I don't have a good editor. And for those of you who say, oh, you, once you get the editor, you just need a good publisher. Well, I've always wanted to write a book, but I lack a publisher as well. So for that many reasons, uh, you get to hear this book that I've been working on for years, and it, the sermons will sound a little different. It's not our norm. I'll be jumping around to different places. But for those of you who weren't here last week, here is the title of where we're going this summer, it's the, the Trivial Life, Exploring and Escaping the Default Mode of the Human Heart. Before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are in control of our lives and our world. Even when we look out and it seems like things are out of control, we see people's houses underwater this week. We see people hurt in the streets, a nine-year-old boy killed in the streets. We see chaos. We see pain and we see suffering. And the last thing the world needs from us is to be engulfed in trivial matters. Father, I ask that you would awaken us, jolt us out of this life that we often try to push forward with our agenda that is often pointless and silly and trivial. And may we be engaged and follow you and be empowered by you to live a life of meaning and purpose for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So my phone has been known, thanks to me, to setting it up to receive text alerts, and I received text alerts from two different entities. The first one, I've just got to be honest with you, is in the past I have received text alerts from a travel guru. He would send these alerts about twice a week when there's a good deal to be had on travel. So he would send a deal like round trip, airfare, New York to L.A., 80 bucks. He would send uh, deals on cruises, on destination um, vacations that were amazing at really cheap rates. And I was always fascinated to get these so I could jump on these travel deals and, and go off to a, an exotic location for a vacation and time of rest. But my phone was also set to receive, uh, I guess you could call them deals, from another entity. And this is an entity that is looking for uh, families to take in children while their parents are undergoing some type of hardship. The organization is called Safe Families. It's not foster care. It's not adoption. But they would text me. Uh, alert. In fact, they texted me yesterday. They, they text me alerts once or twice a week like, hey, we need a family to watch this 11-year-old boy for one week while his dad has surgery. Or, hey, we, we need someone to watch uh, 
two kids for two months while the mom looks for a job and gets off the streets. And I, and I get these competing texts, and I'm conflicted. And so I come to you and I say, I need some advice. Help me make a decision. I have two weeks free, and my wife and I are getting along really good right now. There's no big marriage problems. My, my kids are, they're kind of, things are kind of steady at home. So I need to make a decision. The first opportunity I have is I can go away for two weeks to Cancun, Mexico with my wife, five-star hotel, all the food provided, airfare, transfers, tips, and it's not a timeshare scheme for $1,000, two weeks, about a third of the rate. Okay? But you're like, pretty good. You're like, where can I get that deal at? <laughs> Second deal. Second deal. There is uh, twins, seven-year-old twins. They need someone to watch them for two weeks while the mom looks for a job in permanent housing to get out of the shelter. So I have two competing things. And I come to you and I ask for advice. I could go in the sun, eat good food, and chill out for two weeks. Or I could serve this family and it's going to disrupt our family, make things a little hard for two weeks. What should I do? Now, there is a place for vacations. There is a place for relaxing and having fun and being with your family. And there is also a place to step up, right, and to serve those in need. We know these two things. But, but here's what I want to press upon you. And I want you to be honest with what's going on in your life. If you were honest, more often than not, you make decisions that serve you and your interest and your fun rather than serving others, others in need. Just be honest, right? Like, we, we get these things thrown at us often, and more often than not, we lean in the direction of ourselves, yeah? We lean in the direction of what we've been calling the trivial life, and it's a trivial life because we make consistent decisions that lean in the direction of self, rather than the direction of others and serving them. Vacations are not bad, but more often than not, we make choices that lean towards self rather than toward others. And here's the question we started asking last week. Why does your life often trend toward that which is trivial? Why does your life often trend toward that which is trivial? It's a good question to ask. It's something good to think through. And the answer we started to discover last week is that the bent of your heart and the bent of my heart is toward triviality unless you make a decision to do something intentionally otherwise, right? 
you're going to often have this bent toward triviality unless you make a decision to go this direction. Remember? It's like a, the default mode of a computer. It's going to do its thing unless you redirect it to do something else. Your heart is going to default toward triviality unless you direct it to do something else. And the whole point of talking about this this summer is that you are not destined to live a life of triviality. You are not destined to continue to make decisions that lean in the direction of self. A life of futility. A life of triviality. Because I believe if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus, this is what has happened. I talked about it last week. Jesus died on the cross, he rose, he filled us with the Spirit, and now we have the ability to make decisions that lean in the direction of serving others. And we called this the weighty life. Remember, we called it the weighty life. The weighty life because God in all of his glory, with all his perfection characteristics combined, are weighty. And when we live lives for his glory, we live lives that, that show the weight and glory of God, and that is the weighty life. So if the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we have the ability to make decisions by his power to live the weighty life, and we examine our hearts, we want to move away from triviality toward the weighty life, the question that we have this morning is, why don't we do that more? If we truly are believers in Jesus with the Holy Spirit in us, why don't we make decisions that serve others more for the glory of God and ourselves? What's the deal? Is the Christian life real? Is the Bible real? Why do we keep defaulting over here in this direction of serving ourselves? And here's the answer, and this is what we're going to explore this morning. It has to do with worship. It has to do with worship. If you find yourself consistently defaulting to triviality, pay attention to what you're worshiping. The passage we're going to look at this morning, I don't know if you've ever preached it before, Isaiah 44. Go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 44. See if you can find it. Isaiah 44. I don't know if you've ever read this passage, ever studied this passage, but it's about worship and the triviality of worship. So I'm going to read it to you, Isaiah 44. Why don't you go ahead and stand as I read the Word of God. We'll start in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak 
and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks, bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? You may be seated. Israel had a history of worshiping false gods and idols. Even after God delivered them out of Egypt, they are bowing down to the golden calf. If you've ever read the book of Judges, during the the Judges, there's this cycle of God delivering them from their enemies, but then they go right back to worshiping the idols of their enemies. God brought them to the land, and they prospered, but they kept going back to idols. It's absolutely ridiculous. You'll see the cycle throughout the Old Testament. They keep going back to worshiping idols. And Isaiah writes this passage, and it seems that he, he writes it for the future generations of Israelites to not return to the folly of previous generations. This is good news. Because I know some of you may be wondering that you know your parents, and we're not, we're not going to be dogging on our parents, but you know your parents, and you know the kind of stuff that they were into. Maybe you do know that that's not the best it would cross a line into idolatry, something that was harmful. And you may think that you are doomed to repeat your parents' idolatry. Like the, the you know, we'll all see these, these verses that say, you know, the sins of the fathers go down to the other generations. And you have this idea that you are doomed to repeat the sins of your parents. But that's not the case. Quick story here. In the Bible, there was this king named Manasseh. And his son... Manasseh's son, uh, Ammon, worshipped idols like dear old dad did. But Ammon had a son named Josiah. And he turned from idolatry and wickedness that plagued generations before him, and he sought the Lord. So Josiah didn't say, you know what? My dad worships idols. My grandpa worships idols. So I guess I'm doomed to repeat the sins of my family. Not the case. Do not believe those lies. There is freedom for you from idolatry. You do not have to repeat the sins of your parents, whatever that may be. So what we're going to do over the next few passages here, we're going to start out by seeing that idols and idol makers are trivial. Let's go back to the text. Check it out again. Look in verse 9. 
All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. This statement right here, it's all inclusive of everyone who worships idols. Did you see it there? It says, all who fashion idols are nothing, without exception. They will not profit. They'll be put to shame. And verse 10 says, all his companions shall be put to shame. Let them all assemble. They shall be put to shame together. All idol makers are nothing. And they are participating in the trivial life. And it includes you and it includes me when we create idols to worship. And, and this is the, the thing that's kind of weird for our society is that, is that we don't worship little statues uh, of idols. But our idols come from our hearts and they can range from, you know, these things. Money to sex to comfort, security, food and drink, power, adventure. All those things are not necessarily bad in of themselves from sex to comfort, security, food, and drink. Those aren't bad enough themselves, but they become idolatry when we elevate a good thing to an ultimate thing. Do you get that? It becomes an idol when you elevate a good thing to an ultimate thing. And when you start to do that, you, you're, you're finding some satisfaction from something else ultimately in the place of God. We may be these modern idol makers but we are just as trivial as the ancient idol makers, even the guy that we see today in Isaiah 44. Not only are idol makers nothing, the idols they make are trivial as well because the idols themselves do not profit the lives of humans. Okay, back in the day, I started working my first job at 15 at this place called Arby's. Have you heard of it? And if you're from the early 80s, you know that it stands for America's Roast Beef, Yes, Sir. Okay, none of you are from the early 80s. Sorry. I planned to work one Christmas break. I could have taken it off, but I decided to work for two weeks there because I was determined to buy a... 12-inch Sirwin Vega woofer for my 1982-98 Oldsmobile. Does that make any sense to any of you? It's okay. It doesn't make sense to any of you. has something to do with loud music. And all I could think about when I was serving up fries and roast beef sandwiches and Jamocha shakes, you're getting hungry, all I could think about was my 12-inch Sirwin Vega woofer that I was going to put in my car. And I finally was able to purchase this woofer, and I put it in my car, and I was disappointed. It just wasn't loud enough. So I swapped it out for two 15-inch woofers, and that was loud. That was loud, yeah. But I often think about my Sirwin Vega 12-inch woofer, even to this day. I have no idea why it keeps coming to my mind. And I just picture it in some junk pile decaying away. Because I focused on it thinking that it was going to bring me so much satisfaction and yet it let me down. Isn't that how idols work? 
It's only after the fact do you realize, oh, that really didn't satisfy me. I don't know if those of you who ever thought, you know, if I can just get a different job, then when I get that job, that's going to completely satisfy me. But then you get that job, you're like, oh, that didn't really fix everything. And for those of you who, who are single, you think, you know, if I could just get married and you idolize marriage, then it's going to be totally awesome. And so you get married, you're like, oh, that is not the case, Right? And so we can create these future scenarios or these things that we think, once we get them, they're going to satisfy us completely, and we get them, you're like, oh, that, not, not so much. You see, it's only after the fact that we realize that idols will not completely satisfy us. All right, let's keep going in the text. Let's keep going in the text. Let's look at verse 12. Listen. <laughs> Absurd creation of an idol. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. All right, all right. The Bible speaks of God creating and forming humans. He fashions them. So this idol maker fashions an idol with his own strong arm. And though the idol maker may assume a godlike role, he is nonetheless hungry, faint, and his strength fails. Verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So the idol maker carves and shapes the idol, you catch that, into a figure of a man so that it may dwell in a house, which would be a temple. What has happened here is that the idol maker has exchanged God for an image of mortal man. Does that, does that ring a bell to you? How about Romans one twenty three? Romans one twenty three says, He exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal man. That's exactly what we're seeing in Isaiah 44. This great exchange is taking place. Rather than giving glory to God, they give it to mortal man, an image of mortal man. All right? Look at verse 14. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Rain comes down, God is making the tree grow, only to be cut down by a foolish idol maker. Now we're going to see the absurdity of idol making in full effect. Look at verse 15 again. Look at this. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Is that not the most ridiculous thing you have ever seen? The parts of the tree that are not used in idol creation 
are used for fire to warm himself or to cook his dinner. And the same wood from the same tree is also used for heat. It's used for heat, food, and worship. That is absurd and crazy to think, why would this guy take this wood, warm himself over a fire and cook his food, and also keep himself, you know, happy with this fire, and then go and worship the same wood? Is that not absurd? Why would he do that? Why? Well, you see what we're getting at here. Is Why would you do that? And you think, no, I would never do that. That's ridiculous. And yet we do a lot of the same things. We put these things that are things of the created order, and we put them in the place of God. It's, it's something called uh, the great exchange, where we're exchanging the God, true mortal God, for images of this world. Are you starting to see that at the core of all sin and idolatry is the failure to honor, think, and bring glory to God? When we fall into idol worship, this great exchange happens where we take God and all this glory and we swap him out for something on this earth. Let me tell you a story of the great exchange. It's a picture. My middle son, when he was seven years old, had his tonsils taken out, and during the same surgery, they took out his adenoids. At the time, he called them his androids. So, I don't know if you've ever had these surgeries done to you, but it was very painful. Uh, it was, it, he would wake up at night just hysterical, screaming in pain. It was, it was it, and we could not calm him down, and my wife, she would go in compassion and and love him, and, and try to calm him down, and it would take forever, and eventually, he'd fall asleep, and she'd come back to bed, and then a little bit later, screaming, and hysterical, wow, just wailing, and you, you know, as the man, I was like, man, this, this is not working. I'm going to have to figure out something else, because my wife, she would do that all night to calm this boy down, but it, it, it just got old, and so I came up with a plan. The next time he woke up screaming and hysterical, I stuck an iPad in his face. He loved the iPad. <laughs> and so he would scream, scream, and he, hmm. And so he would play on the iPad and fall back asleep. And the next time he'd wake up, there's the iPad over there. The great exchange had taken place. <laughs> right? He gave up the, the warm, compassionate, loving mom for an iPad. We do that all the time. We exchange holy, glorious, loving, kind Father, and we swap things out and say, no, 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 I got this one. I got this one. It's absurd. It's absurd. That doesn't make any sense. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Keep back to Why do we do that? All right, back to the text. Back to the text. It gets, it gets really good here. Back to the text. Verse 18. Verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot 
understand. Their hearts are so hard that God has shut their eyes and their hearts that they can't comprehend the absurdity of their worship. How else can you explain their actions and their inability to reason that God has shut them down because they're so far gone? Verse 19. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, well, half of it I burn on the fire, I also bake bread on its coals, I roast it meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Should I fall down before the block of wood? The hearts are so hard, and then their senses are so dulled that they cannot see the absurdity of their worship. So their common condemnation is just. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Idolatry is equated with eating ashes, which is nothing and does not satisfy. But this deluded heart is so messed up that he can't even say, there is a lie in my right hand. Wouldn't that be terrible for God to hand you over to your idol so much so that you can no longer see what you're doing is absurd? I don't think this happens to the believer. If the Holy Spirit is in you, there may be times of self-deception, but I don't think you come to a point where God completely hands you over to death and to hell. I think there's always this conviction that can come upon you where you can see that what you're doing is foolish. But back to our question. What are we thinking when we stay in idolatry? Why would we stay in idolatry? When we exchange the glory of God for things of this earth, what are we thinking? Let me put the question to you more technical from Heath Lambert. He says, how could clear-thinking people trade the glory of an infinite God for a statue that is not God? Why, why, why would you do that? Why would you trade anything for God and put in the place of God? Why, why, why? And, and, I, and I, hope this, I hope you're still with me because this is going to be the most eye-opening thing that you're going to hear. I hope you can track with me for the next few minutes. Why would you do that? It's because you believe, it's because you believe that idols are going to give you what you want. It's because you believe, we believe, that idols are going to give you what you want. There was a time in Israel's history where the prophet Jeremiah confronted them on their idol worship. And I want you to see the people's response. This, this money, this verse is, is just gold. Put it up. Jeremiah um, 44. This, I know it's a lot of text, but this is, this is gold here. To explain the rational thinking of why someone would exchange God for idols. Let me read this to you. This is amazing what they say to Jeremiah. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and, and saw no disaster. 
But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Do you see what they're saying? When we worshiped idols, we got what we wanted. We worshiped them. They gave us what we want. And we stopped worshiping them. We didn't, we didn't get our stuff. It, it, it's like we set our desires and what we think we need. And then we figure out which idol will give it to us. We all do this. We think things like, okay, I need sexual satisfaction, so I will get it any way that I want. I need comfort, so I'll find it in food, or I'll find comfort in drink or drugs or, or binging on TV. I need security, so I will find it in my salary or my retirement account or my degree. I need control, so I'll, I'll, I'll yell at people and I'll manipulate situations and I'll get angry so I can have control. Rather than letting God tell you what you need and to find it in Him, all of us like to create these things and say what we need and we go in search of finding the idol to fulfill it. It's the ultimate epitome of building the trivial life. Who is ultimately God in idol worship? Who is ultimately God in building the trivial life? It's me. It's you. When I'm full-blown in idol worship, it's all about me. You see, I create what I want and what I desire. I play God. So I want comfort, I create and desire what will give me comfort. I want security, I will create and desire what will give me security. I want peace, I will create and desire what will give me peace. Yeah. We all do this. We play the little God. And the reason why I'm bringing this up and I want you to see this, it's not so much that when you turn from idolatry, you say, okay, I'm going to turn from that wicked idol over there. You don't just repent of the idol, you repent of your creation of the idol. Are you, are, are, you, are you there? It's not like, oh man, this idol just, wow, just showed up. I need to repent of that idol. No, you need to repent of your creation of that idol. You played a little God and you thought that that idol would satisfy you in the place of God. And when you confess these things, you're not just confessing to immorality or greed or anger. You go deeper in your heart and you start confessing. God, I, I created something there. I played God and that led me to act out in these ways. And then we start to find forgiveness and grace. And I, I think you can tell when you're really repenting and finding grace in Christ when you start doing this. God, you tell me what I need. I think that's kind of true repentance. Like, all right, God, you tell me what I need. And I'm going to find all that I need in you. So if I feel like I need security, Lord, I'm going to find that in you. I need, I need, I'm going to find that in you. I'm going to find happiness all in you. That is when we start to turn from our idols and the trivial life and start to live the weighty life, the life that brings glory to God. 
Okay, back to my problem. Got some options here. I have some deals. Two-week travel deal. Two weeks watching kids who are in need. And I put it back on you. What would you do? What would you do? And I believe the more and more you find satisfaction in God and who God is, the more and more you will turn away from the trivial life and start to serve others and love them because you're completely satisfied in God. And the way I want to end is by asking you one question. What will make you happy? What will make you happy? I know we're in church, but we're asking that question. What will make you happy? And the way you answer that question will have you trending toward the trivial life or the weighty life. What will make you happy? And I think it's appropriate as we ask that question that we talk to God about that in prayer. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I'm asking you right now to examine the hearts and minds of everyone in here so that they will find happiness in you alone. So ask yourself these questions. What will make you happy? Will perfect grades ultimately make you happy? Will the perfect body make you completely happy? How about a romantic and caring spouse? Obedient children? High-paying job? Security in your life? How about better health? Will that ultimately make you happy? Lord, we know that so many of these things are good, but we turn them into bad when we look to them for ultimate happiness outside of you, when we look to our, our spouse to give us ultimate happiness, when we look to our job to give us ultimate happiness, when we look to our health to give us ultimate happiness outside of you, may we see that our joy is in you, and may we, may we find ourselves repenting and finding forgiveness in Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, to shape our wants and our desires by your word, and, and you tell us what we need. You tell us what we should desire so that we will find our happiness and joy in you and you alone because we truly want to live the weighty life that highlights you and all of your perfections and glory. In Christ's name, amen.